Are you sabotaging your children's behavior in subconscious ways without even realizing it? You have a hidden power of influence that you may not even be aware of. In this episode, you'll discover that power of influence, how you can use it over your children, your husband, your mother, and even your self, your behavior without the use of words, manipulations, bribes, rewards, and punishments so that you can create more ease and flow in your life and reduce friction around day-to-day activities. You're listening to The Parenting Junkie Show, the place to go to love parenting and to parent from love. I'm your host, Avital. Hi, I'm Avital. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm a mindful parenting coach and the mother of four, and my goal is to help you, my fellow imperfect, intentional parents, say goodbye to clutter, chaos, and conflict, and reclaim peace, presence, and play for your family. The problem that many of us face is a sense of helplessness, of powerlessness in trying to get cooperation from our kids. We need them to get up in the morning, to get dressed in time, to get out of the door, to brush their teeth, to learn certain things or to master certain skills, to stop certain behaviors like screaming or hitting or pinching or biting or kicking or stealing or lying. You know, we need to have influence over our children as their guides. We need to have authority over them as those that are responsible for them and their growth, or at least responsible to them, right? But sometimes the environment around them, the environment within our home especially, is sending them the polar opposite message of what we want. We want them to behave in a certain way, but we are layering obstacle over obstacle in getting them to do that behavior. In other words, we're making it very difficult without realizing. Let me give you some examples. You might be trying to get your kids to go to sleep at a certain time, but you're layering on obstacles without knowing about it to that end goal. Maybe the environment isn't sleep inducing. Maybe there's too much light or too much blue light from screens before they go to sleep and you're disrupting their melatonin and so they can't wind down. Or maybe they've eaten too much or the room is too warm and therefore the environment is sending them the opposite message like stay awake where you're trying to get them sleepy so you don't even realize but you're self-sabotaging. Or maybe we might be completely undermining our children's interests and abilities to focus and play independently. I'll soon explain more about how we do that. Or perhaps you're doing this to yourself or to your partner. Maybe you're stopping yourself from doing things that will bring you more health and happiness, like going to sleep earlier or eating your greens or working out because you're not creating an environment that supports those things. Look, if you have the TV very readily available, the controls are right there, or you have unhealthy snack food on hand, or you've chosen a gym that's too far away or doesn't have easy hours for you, then you're making those habits really inaccessible. And you're doing that to your kids too sometimes. Hey, by the way, before I go on any further, I want to let you know that the show notes to this episode are over at theparentingjunkie.com forward slash 18. So any resources or just to get the, the 
notes and the timestamps for this episode, if you want to go back and listen to it, you can do that at theparentingjunkie.com forward slash 18. And I'll also direct you there to our challenge. If you're listening as this episode drops, thank you so much for being a loyal listener. I so appreciate your attention and your time. I know that precious resources. And I want to let you know that I'm currently running a three-week challenge. It's a free challenge. It's called Reclaim Play, and it leads up to the opening of my Present Play membership. I want to give everyone a taste of what it's like in there before we open the doors so you can decide if it's a right fit for you. But even if you have no intention of joining Present Play, join the challenge. It's free. It's fun. And as a community, we're going to take real, real steps to make changes to our lives that will going to affect our children's play and in turn their health and happiness and our own. In the first week, we went through a decluttering challenge. You can go back and watch that first video. It's an awesome video. We worked really hard on that video and we got such amazing feedback from it. And I'd love to hear what you think. So you can just leave a comment there or DM me on Instagram. And you can get the free guide, the PDF guide. We worked hard on that too. It's going to help you crush those limiting beliefs. It's going to give you a step-by-step action plan to actually getting decluttering success and getting that clutter out for good. So get that. And then this week, we're doing our second week of the challenge. And it's all about what we're talking about today, this secret power of influence that you have. So if you're listening to this and you think it might help someone else, some parent friend that you have that you think would love it, please send it over to them. You can tag me on Instagram at Parenting Junkie and snap a selfie and just share it out on your stories. I love to see where you're listening from. Are you jogging? Are you cooking? Are you washing the dishes? What are you doing? It's really cool for me to see where in the world you are and what you're doing while I'm in your ear. Let's get back to this question of how we can influence our children without talking at them. Because that's what we usually do, right? We tell them what to do. We tell them, go and brush your teeth, make your bed. You have to be dressed in warmer clothes, yada, 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 jabba, jabba, jabba. And talking, you know, it's our modem operandi. It's what most of us kind of default to. When we're trying to influence someone's behavior, we tell them what to do. And of course, I'm not telling you to stop telling your children things that you need them to do or asking them for cooperation verbally. I'm just going to plant the seed that that might not be your most powerful tool all of the time, or it shouldn't be the only tool, at least, in your parenting toolbox of influence. Because when you talk, talk, talk at people, especially if you're repeating things, they tune you out. I mean, my kids literally say to me, I have ice cream in my ears and I can't hear you. Now, don't ask me why they say ice cream. I, I, It's just such a weird choice because I don't think ice cream would really block out sounds that well. It'll probably melt, get really sticky and disgusting in your ears. But listen, that's what my kids have chosen to say when they're tuning me out. And it's a very clear message. I don't want you to talk anymore. Be quiet. <laughs> and so I get it. And the other thing that we try to do to influence people is to show them what to do, right? Like, here, copy me. And that's great. Like, modeling, definitely a very good parenting tool, in my opinion, something that we should use all of the time. The trouble is that when we tell and show people, then it's still kind of active, controlling behaviors. And I I don't say that in a bad way, because we have to. We have to tell them and show them what to do. Like, here, make your bed like this, or here, clear the table like this. We, We have to. That's part of being a guide and a teacher. It's okay. 
The trouble is that sometimes it can really frustrate us when we don't get through because sometimes there's resistance that comes up in the person we're trying to influence. Like if we tell our partner, hey, can you take out the garbage every Monday? And every Monday we're like, can you take out the garbage? Hey, take out the garbage. Look, you didn't take out the garbage. We can start to feel like a nag and that person, even if they know we're right and they're essentially grateful for the reminder, they might still tune us out because almost all humans have a resistance to being told what to do and shown what to do. They like to discover things for themselves. I mean, think back to a time when this was true for you, where you didn't want direction or you didn't want someone else to explain the process for you. You wanted to discover it for yourself. It's sometimes something in a learning atmosphere, like maybe you've seen a Rubik's cube and someone was going to show you how to solve it, which would actually take all of the fun, kind of the the pizzazz, the sting of discovering it for yourself out, right? The whole idea was that you're going to sit there and crack it and really work hard on it. Now, just for reference, I don't know how to solve a Rubik's Cube, so I never actually really fully uh, solved one. But you see my example, right? Um, Or maybe it's like, spoiler alert, someone's going to tell you about how a movie ends or how a story ends. No, I wanted to discover that for myself. Or if someone gives you a recommendation for something, oh, here's how you should solve that problem, or here's what you should do. Sometimes you're grateful, but sometimes it feels a little bit like, well, it wasn't my journey. It wasn't my discovery. It's not mine. And it can take you actually even longer to get to the same conclusion than if they'd have just let you discover something for yourself. So, I'm not in any way saying that this mode of influence, this hidden subconscious tool that I'm about to share replaces talking or showing. I'm just saying it's a big part of our influence and it can complement those things. And sometimes, yes, it can replace them. So what am I talking about? What is this hidden power that isn't talking or showing? It is the power of design. I am a designer by trade, so I'm using the word design here, but it can be architecture, it could be engineering, it could be curation or editing, it could be manipulation of an environment. But basically, it's about choosing what we have in our homes, in our spaces, what is available, what is obvious, what is accessible. It's about manipulating the environment, creating a space, creating a collection of items and messages, both subconscious and conscious, that support the behavior we want to see. So the idea is not to manipulate the child, not to manipulate yourself even, but rather to manipulate your environment. And I'm going to give you three kind of categories where this is relevant and how it can apply in a very practical way. So a little bit of a design or architecture lesson here, just things that I learned in my degree in design. But the first one is just understanding that space, the design of the space, the feel of the space dictates our behavior. We are very, very heavily influenced by the space that we're in. Stepping into a certain type of room immediately influences everything about you. Everything about what you're thinking and feeling, the words you're going to use, the behaviors you're going to default to. 
I mean, think about different spaces you go into in your life. If you think about going into an airport or a big bus station, you know, these places are designed to lead big numbers of people through a process, an orderly process, step-by-step process. And they're designed to elicit a sense of a little bit of a fear of authority, a feeling of being small, one of a crowd, kind of you're on a factory line, you've got to move through it. So you need to be obedient, you need to be quick, you need to be alert, um, and they're not going to encourage creativity or self-expression or relaxation or connection between people or any of that kind of stuff. It's all about efficiency and a factory-like feeling that produces the desired result. It leads you through the maze effectively, right? If you think about religious institutions, maybe think about big churches, um, you know, maybe Gothic architecture, old Catholic churches, for example, where you see kind of a sense of awe inspiring, right? You walk into a church, you immediately feel small, you feel uh, that you are part of a congregation, you're one of many, there is something above you, literally. It's often much, much, much taller in its proportion. The ceiling is so much higher than any other building you would usually go into. Why? Because it's pointing to a sense of a greater, bigger presence, right? The lighting, the sound system, right? The fact that churches are echoey. This all informs how we're supposed to feel. Maybe a sense of worship, a sense of um, submission, a sense of awe, of inspiration. This many different religious institutions will try to and effectively produce those feelings, right? Um, And then you might have different kinds of religious institutions that might be a lot more cozy or community-centric. Maybe you have a a prayer circle rather than sitting in rows and all facing forward. If there's a prayer circle, that's suddenly going to create a very different feeling, a feeling of much more equality, right? Much more human-centered theology there. So lots of different religious institutions are going to use architecture and design to elicit different behaviors, a different sense of either adherence or individuation, depending on what they're looking to create. If you think about a supermarket, going into a supermarket, usually when you go into a supermarket, there's a sense of stepping into an alternative world. It's like there's no direct light, there's no direct contact with the outside world, there are no clocks, just like a casino, right? They are making you enter in and forget everything else. It's not part of the fabric of your day-to-day life. You're suddenly in this parallel universe where you're going up and down aisles and there's the sense that you need to go through all of the aisles in order to complete the maze, right? And, you know, it's not for now that they will place something like the milk at the back because most people need milk and most people therefore will stride through the entire length of all the aisles and be much more likely to fill their carts. Why are shopping carts so big? Because we fill the space that is given to us. So these different examples of buildings, essentially, and their interior design are just a way of me illustrating the power of space design. Okay, you might think no one's standing there and showing or telling you what to buy in a supermarket, Uh, but they are. 
Yes and no, right? I mean, they're not telling you with words, but they are certainly telling you through product placement. They are certainly telling you by the way they design certain packaging and place it at the certain height that it's at. For example, cereal boxes. Cereal boxes are designed specifically, um, especially kids' cereal, to attract children, right? They use the right colors and characters, and they use characters with eyes that are looking directly at the child, and then they put, put it at the level of the second or third shelf, so it's eye height. And I dare you to try walk down a supermarket aisle of the cereal aisle and not have your child scream and ask for Captain Crunch because they see that box and it's designed to get them interested. So in that way, space, placing, packaging, all the visual cues around us tells us what to do without telling us. And seeing as whatever space you're in, it's going to dictate certain behaviors. Why not use that to our advantage? Why not create a space that tries to support good behavior? In my membership present play, we go deep into all of the design elements and the zones that I recommend having. But I do want to get you started with some quick tips here, okay? Because I believe that when we are at home, we want to create an environment where certain behaviors that kids are anyway drawn to that they have schemas, in other words, urges uh, to, to explore developmentally or just that they're interested in, should be catered to in an allowed way. What do I mean by that? Well, if your kid loves drawing and they keep drawing on the wall, rather than getting super frustrated that that keeps happening, there are several ways we could solve that. First of all, we can create a messy zone and keep directing them back to that messy zone. You don't need a whole room for this. It could just be a tray on your kitchen countertop. This is where you do messy work on this tray. It has to stay on this tray. You could also preempt any, you know, big frustration by only having washable colors available, washable markers, for example, or by having the type of paint on your walls, albeit slightly less attractive, but far more efficient, that is wipeable. So, you know, this is what I mean by manipulating the environment rather than the child. Instead of putting them in a space where they're doomed to fail because the colors are permanent and the furniture and everything is super precious and the walls are easily destroyed and they don't have a space to express that important artistic urge that they are seeking to express, that sets us all up for failure. And then you keep telling and showing and telling and showing, no, don't draw on the walls. No, don't do it. Right. You'll have to do so much less of that when they have a place to go, even if it's a very small space. So that's one example. Another example is the fact that clutter creates stress for everybody, for kids as well. And so that's an easy way of manipulating your environment is to declutter, is to create more minimalistic spaces, spaces where everything has a place. If you keep telling your child to tidy up, but things don't have a place, they don't know where to put them, or they don't all fit in, or it's hard to manipulate their storage containers and they can't do it physically, then you're setting yourself up for stress. Instead, manipulate the environment and make spaces that are decluttered, where everything has a space and where that space is easily accessible, even for the children. Another example is colors. Colors have messages. If you paint the walls of a room red, that will create a certain emotional reaction for people. Whereas if you paint it white or cream or gray, it will have a different emotional charge. 
And this leads me into our next point, which is that items hold a certain energy. The things that we have in our home have a message within them. Every single object, every single thing in the world has a message. Now, you can understand this through the woo-woo lens, right? You could say it holds an energy, right? You can say that it has a vibration. That would be a woo-woo way of saying that something has a message. Or you can just understand it from the scientific and psychological aspect, which is that it has an association, right? When I show people the color red, we know. We know that it has a certain association in people's minds. Red might mean passion. It might be anger, fire, emergency, danger, death. There are lots of different associations with red, some positive, some negative, but they're all pretty intense, right? That's psychology, that's not woo-woo, um, but it doesn't matter what language you use to describe it. The point is that there's a story to items. Who made it? Where's it from? Who is the type of person who would have this thing in their home? If you walk into someone's home and they have a massive collector's item, uh, you know, a giant Hello Kitty doll, that has a message to it. That tells you something about that person. It tells you a lot about them. Even subconsciously, you are associating them with certain things, with pop culture, with Japan, with girly paraphernalia, right? There's lots of different messages that that things hold. So the things that you have in your home, the colors that you have in your home, you have to think about the items you have in a space and about the type of association they bring about, the type of behavior they therefore dictate, right? Because the things we see subconsciously trigger certain thoughts and associations in our mind, which make us feel a certain way, which make us behave a certain way. Okay, if you come into a police station or into a child's classroom or into a hospital room or into a spa, they all are sending you different messages through the material, shapes, colors, icons, language, uniforms, um, posture, body posture and body language that the people on the things in there are communicating. And therefore you will behave differently in each and every one of those places. So we want to think about the type of energy that we're creating in a room. And you know, if we go into a room and we see a massive Paw Patrol collection, you know, in a playroom, Paw Patrol is going to, and I, this isn't, I say all of these things without judgment. I'm just saying associations that come up with it. Paw Patrol will connect to television, to watching screens. It will connect to maybe American culture, to consumerism, to dogs, to bravery, to uniforms, to friendship. There are all sorts of themes that are associated with Paw Patrol. If you have an aloe vera plant in your room, it will bring completely different associations than the Paw Patrol dogs, right? It will maybe remind you of healing or of cooling or of soothing or of the desert. So our lighting, our colors, all of these items hold energy. And what I want to invite you to do today is to choose the ones that reflect you, your desires, and what you desire for your children and what their interests are. When you reflect your inner world in your outer world, as much as you can, not obsessively, but just with some consciousness towards it, some intentionality, then there becomes a cohesiveness between what I'm experiencing inside and what I'm interested in and what is reflected for me in the outside world. 
And this leads me to the real power here. And I am going to call it the power of strewing or the power of focus. And they're in some ways the same. Strewing is the title of this week's challenge. If you are following us live and you're part of the challenge, we're talking about strewing. And strewing is basically, when it comes to parenting and play, it's about leaving out play provocations. That is the language used in the Reggio Emilia um, school of thought. You might call it play prompts, play invitations. But it's basically if you imagine a child walking into a playroom and seeing uh, a little scene set up for themselves. Say that child is really into tractors, okay, and they just wake up in the morning, they come into their play space, maybe that's in their bedroom or in the living room or in a playroom, and they see a little world with a few tractors and some pebbles and perhaps a book about tractors and they're intrigued and they're drawn in and they can't help themselves but to play with those tractors. Now the cool thing about strewing is those tractors were in the box, in the toy box the day before and the child wasn't interested in them at all but suddenly it's almost as if magic has happened and it's been set out for them in this invitation to explore. Now, of course, it was you, the parent, who set it out for them the night before while they were asleep or in the morning while you were busy with something, while they were busy with something else. But just that change of energy, just that intention that you put into those things suddenly creates a different relationship with the very same items they had before. So when you present certain invitations, these truths, you have the power to influence behavior. Think about the role of a museum curator. What are they essentially doing? What are they placing in front of you? A museum curator is thinking about the experience of the visitor and thinking about the series of experiences they'll go through. First, they'll be presented with this photograph and then they'll see this painting and then they'll move forward and suddenly they'll see this sculpture and then there'll be a pause as they look out the window and then there'll be another painting etc right they're, they're designing an experience how many of us know that we have that power to draw focus to certain things because it dictates your behavior okay think about a table setting when someone designs what a table setting looks like they're sending a very clear message to the participants of that meal of how they want them to behave if you come over to someone's house and they've thrown some plastic plates on the table and a few plastic forks no knives and that's the setting for the meal you know what to expect in that meal you know that it's casual you know that it's easy maybe it's a potluck maybe it's really just uh, thrown together last minute or you're going to make it together with your host right and it's super cash super relaxed if you come to a meal and there's you know three different sets of knives and china and glass and certain materials and certain shapes right maybe gold edges on the plates, etc. you know that a very different type of meal and very different type of expectation of your behavior has been set up for you. That is a provocation as well, right? It's an invitation to a meal and telling you how we want you to behave through the items and how they are presented. Of course, lots of different things are going to dictate your behavior too, like the invitation and how the host behaves. But think about the power of just what the set the setup is, okay? A magazine left on a table in a doctor's office, suddenly you'll find yourself flicking through, even though maybe you hadn't previously had any interest in 
whatever it is, National Geographic. So this week, I invite you to screw, to intentionally set out play invitations for your children, at least once a day, just for this week. Try and do it while they're asleep. And if you want to join us in this challenge and get the guide to strewing, go to theparentingjunkie.com forward slash challenge for the strew guide. I've put together a PDF guide with all the different types of strews that are best for each age, stage, and schema. But really, you want to be thinking about your child's interest. What are they into? Or think about a new way of setting up toys and breathing life into the toys you already have, because this also means you don't need to buy yet more, which is yet another benefit of strewing is that you're basically breathing new life into things that you already have. And you can take this much further. Strewing applies to you too. If you set up a docking station for your phone outside of your room, that will help you with the behavior you might be trying to accomplish, which is not bringing your phone into your room. So you put your charger away from your room, for example. Look at that. That's just a strew. That's just a way of manipulating the environment so that you don't have to force yourself and guilt yourself and shame yourself when you fail at that behavior. Instead, you're setting the environment up for your success. Or perhaps you put out your gym clothes the night before, so that in the morning you put on your gym clothes and then you're much more likely to do a little workout. Or getting your greens prepped and your blender out the night before, so you're much more likely to make your smoothie. Or putting a journal next to your bed and making sure you keep it there, so you're more likely to do your journaling. When we take control over our environment, when we use design and architecture, colors, shapes, textures, to dictate what our environment is sending us, what message it's sending us, what behavior it's dictating to us, we put on our designer's hat. We can create an environment that feels amazing and influences our behaviors and supports our best habits too. I hope that this has been really helpful and I would love to hear from you over on Instagram or on the comment section on the website. I would absolutely love to hear from you. You can DM me on Instagram. As we go through this challenge, I'm trying to answer as many as possible. Um, And I hope that you're in the challenge. And if you're listening sometime in the future, don't worry, you can still go there. You can sign up on the wait list for when we run it next time. Next week, we're going to talk about yet another completely free, super antidepressant and health happiness booster in our third and final week of our live challenge. I hope you join us then. Thanks for listening to the Parenting Junkie Show. If this was helpful for you, I would be so appreciative if you would subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Subscribing to the show means you'll get the bonus episodes that I only deliver here. And when you rate and review the show, it helps other parents find it. I'll be shouting out some of my favorite reviews in upcoming episodes and would love to spotlight you. And remember, keep on loving parenting and parenting from love. Namaste.